Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm pleased to say we have Tony Penna on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, The Human Footprint, A Global Environmental History. It was the case a long time ago that we thought of geological ages as produced by what might be termed macro-historical or even just geological forces, you know, the tilt of the earth, the disposition of oceans, plate tectonics, these kinds of things, things that we would now call acts of God. As Tony Penna points out, we now live in an age in which the situation has changed dramatically. Now acts of God are the tangible results of the acts of men men who have, over the last million-odd years, altered the environment of the Earth very significantly, such that today the environment is being molded and changed and transformed, and I guess some people would say badly damaged by human activity at an incredible clip. The point is that the geological age is really a human age now, that the Earth we think of maybe as our garden, but in fact... It's something more complicated than that. And something maybe not sustainable. This is not an easy thing to think about. It, it, it has disturbing implications, I think, for everyone involved. It's not clear that even though we are the cause of much environmental change, that we have the power over ourselves and over the earth to halt the process which is now going on and we initiated. And it is definitely the case that there are uh, other factors involved that we're overwhelm all of our activity. Just wait for the next ice age. I really enjoyed talking to Tony today, and I think that you'll enjoy the book. So without further delay, here's the interview. Hi, Tony. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Um, I have a little bit of uh, uh, the residue of uh, an allergy attack. But uh, other than that, I'm doing just fine. No, I have the same thing. Uh, Today, you are listening to Marshall Poe and Tony Penna, Tony Penna being the more significant of the two. Both of us have allergies, so we probably don't sound too good. Tony has written a terrific book called The Human Footprint, A Global Environmental History. As those of you who listen to this show know, I am a big fan of big history. We've had several big history historians on the show, and I'm a fan of world history. And Northeastern University, where uh, Tony teaches, is uh, one of the founding places of uh, global history. And uh, so we're very pleased to talk to him today about that. And it's a thrill for me to have read this this book and to talk to Tony. Before uh, we begin actually talking about the text itself, Tony, why don't you do me the favor of saying a few words about yourself? I, uh, I began teaching actually as a public school teacher in Massachusetts back in 1961. Uh, having gotten a master's degree in history from the University of Chicago, became all caught up in the so-called history curriculum reform movement of the 1960s, 
and was invited uh, to join a group of potential authors uh, and also enter the doctoral program at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. Uh, I thought I would be there for three years, get my degree, and move on. And at the end of three years, they hired me. <laughs> and I left, I left after 18 years. Mm-hmm. I was, uh, by that time, the dean of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Carnegie Mellon. And in 1985, I uh, left Pittsburgh where I'd met my wife and we had raised our two children and accepted the position as provost and senior vice president for academic affairs at Northeastern. Um, So we moved here in the 1980s uh, and by 1990, my administrative appointment had ended and rather than moving on, uh, the next step is usually a college presidency for reasons that I don't think would interest the viewers, uh, I went back to teaching history. Mm-hmm. Hadn't taught in many years, having been an administrator at Carnegie Mellon and uh, a, uh, an administrator at Northeastern. I was looking for something new to do. Two of my colleagues and mentors, uh, Joel Tarr, who's a uni- now a university professor at Carnegie Mellon, um, and Irving Bartlett, who, when I entered their doctoral program, was uh, the chairman of the history department and by that time had moved on to Boston to become the John F. Kennedy Professor of American Civilization at UMass Boston, encouraged me that if I was going to begin to work once again in the field, there was a field that was emerging at the time uh, that both of them would contributing to both by their written work and their teaching, and that was environmental history. Uh, they passed along their undergraduate syllabi to me, which from which I extracted interesting books and began teaching at the undergraduate level. In 1992, Pat Manning, who was actually the, the, the inspiration for our PhD program in world history, uh, received authorization to begin that program. And by that time, I was teaching a graduate course in United States environmental history and being very much taken by Pat's vision of what was possible in our department. I immediately began to teach uh, a graduate seminar in global environmental history. And that's the genesis of the human footprint. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I was also familiar with the work of Fred Spear, who had written an earlier, very short book, in which one of the uh, one of the major categories in that book is the ecological regimes um, that I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. And Uh, One thing led to another, and I decided that I was going to try, um, although I certainly did not have a fully formed plan, to write a global environmental history using the ideas that came not only from global history, but also the ideas that Fred Spear was promulgating. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was on sabbatical in 19... Uh, 91, 
had just finished a previous book called Nature's Bounty, um, uh, an environmental history of the United States, and went on sabbatical and began to explore what a global environmental history book would look like, and decided that it was important that this crossed disciplinary boundaries, that one could not do this using, uh, news, using only historical archives. Mm-hmm. So I began to immerse myself in, in uh, topics about which I knew next to nothing at the time, uh, plate tectonics, <laughs> uh, evolution, evolutionary biology, um, um, the origins of agriculture, um, population studies, and so on. And while I was on sabbatical, I wrote the first three chapters in draft for the human footprint back in 1991 Mm -hmm. and sent them out to colleagues, uh, a few of whom said, uh, this is a project that will go nowhere. Uh, (laughs) A few of of them said, "This this is a daunting project you've undertaken. I said, well, you know, I'm... I'm now in my mid-60s. Uh, my plan is to retire around 70, 71 years old. I think this is a project worth, uh, worth pursuing. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, we think it's a project worth pursuing, but we're not keeping our, uh, we're not holding our breath. Mm-hmm. So uh, I began working on this primarily during the summer months of each one of those uh, years, uh, and by the time we got to 1997, I had most of the manuscript written, and uh, Peter Coveney, who had been my editor at Emmy Shop for Nature's Bounty, was now at uh, John Wiley and Company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and during our negotiations, John Wiley, which is a publicly held company, merged with Basil Blackwell Publishing, which is a UK publishing house. Uh, And Peter believed that there was both a market for this book in the US as well as the European Union. Mm -hmm. So we signed a contract. The book was sent out to seven reviewers. Seven. Seven. That's brutal. Yes. (laughs) Uh, I don't know what you did to deserve that. (laughs) And he shared all of those reviews with me. And uh, wherever more than a majority said, this needs to be attended to more carefully, this needs to be actually extracted, I paid very close attention to them. And for the reviewers that offered comments that no one else had offered, which I found uh, would take me in a different direction, I simply... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Excuse me. I simply ignored. So now... Uh, uh, we have this book, yeah. which has been out for a year and uh, is doing quite well. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. No, it's sort of a cautionary tale for all you people out there, all you very bright young scholars and graduate students who want to write books. Seven reviewers. <laughs> <laughs> it's like having seven mothers. Yes. <laughs> um, I've never been through such a thing. I think the most I've ever had was four, and yeah. I found that um, withering, to be honest with you. So uh, my congratulations to you. Uh, We've had um, both Patrick Manning and Fred Spire on this show, actually. So oh. I was glad to hear that you uh, yeah. mentioned them and the, the, um, 
the listeners might go back into the archive at New Books in History and look up those interviews. They're both terrific. Um, let me ask you a question about uh, where your story begins, because in a certain sense, there's a big difference between uh, Fred Spire and um, Patrick Manning. Uh, fr- Fred really begins at the beginning, and Patrick doesn't. And you choose to begin at the beginning, which is to say you begin with Earth history and then go through evolution. Well, why did you choose to situate environmental history uh, beginning at that point? Well, uh, I think in my early reading of uh, the geological literature, I had discovered, I'm sure every geologist knew this, I, hadn't taken, I had not taken a course in inter- the introduction to geology since, uh, since I was an undergraduate, which had been 50, 50 years or more. Um, and what really struck me was that this field had gone through basically a metamorphosis, that before the 1960s, it was what I remembered as basically um, rocks and sediments. <laughs> and then... In the 1960s, uh, I think, I think partially based on the availability of new marine technology, uh, plate tectonics and continental drift became the new paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read as much as I could in that field and realized um, that some of the significant changes in the planet's climate were taking place more than a billion years ago. And that some of these changes were related to the shifting dynamics of um, these seven major plates and 15 minor plates uh, that actually uh, make up the surface of our planet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then when I began to read in the field of evolutionary biology, which took us back a long, long way, it was very clear to me, and I think from my reading, that um, some of our evolutionary history it was actually driven by changes of the climate of the African savanna and the African uh, Mm -hmm. forests. Now, I know that this is not going to please the creationists, (laughs) but I wasn't really writing for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I believe that those stories needed to be told to... to people who would read, who would read this book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think beginning at this very early point, again in geologic time and then in biological time, I guess we would call it, mm-hmm. does really buttress the point that much of the things that we think of as fixed and necessary parts of reality were really quite contingent. And you have some wonderful examples in the book. I don't know how specific you want to become, but uh, I think the listeners might be interested in really very specific. And, and seemingly small alterations, which had a, quite a large effect on later history. Uh, I was thinking of the part of the book where you talk about the Tibetan Plateau and its effect on global climate, the, the birth of the Tibetan Plateau. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, yes. Um, I, that, that re- when, I, when I discovered the, uh, the essays and the research um, uh, papers on the rise of the Tibetan Plateau as the result of 
uh, what we now know as uh, the Indian subcontinent, breaking off from uh, a, uh, a supercontinent in the southern hemisphere, and over a period of geological time, 50 million years, crashing into the underbelly of what we now know as Eurasia and causing the Tibetan Plateau to begin its rise. And of course, that rise continues to this very day as that continent continues to push uh, against the, as, as India continues to push against the Eurasian landmass. Mm-hmm. And with a plateau of that size and of that height, it has a dramatic impact on airflow um, and therefore uh, greatly influences the climate of not only Asia but also of, uh, also of Europe mm-hmm. and of Africa. Mm-hmm. Now, I know when you talk in these terms, people, students would say to me and even colleagues, 50 million years, I mean, this is moving at an infinitesimal. I said, great. I said, well, of course it is. But that's, uh, that's the way geologists uh, look at uh, the history of our planet. We're not dealing with the history of presidents or kings or the development of the nation state, all yeah. of which are relatively recent phenomena. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that it is important to teach people or to inform people about uh, geologic time and how that it is uh, so much broader than human time. Yet, nonetheless, the things that occurred in it are of fundamental importance, clearly, to today. Because, again, we think of these things as fixed, and, and they are not. I mean, just to give another an example, I'm sorry to go on, but uh, people know that the weather is different on one side of the Rockies than the other. Yes. Right? Yes. I mean, I'm from the Midwest. I know this. I've spent time yes. in the mountains. But they don't think that there was a time in which there were no Rockies. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the weather was the same. Um, yeah. So, so in I, geological I, time, the Rockies are relatively new mountains. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think that's, that's exactly right. So what comes in this early period is of real importance to what happens later. Um, I want you to talk about one more example you give in the book, and that is the Isthmus of Panama and its effect on global uh, climate change. Oh, yeah. Well, it uh, I think uh, the rising of the isthmus uh, basically cuts off the Atlantic uh, ocean flow from the Pacific and redirects uh, that great circulatory system that brings uh, warm water up to New England and crosses over to Great Britain and then down the, um, the West African coast and then around Africa to the Pacific, that that, that seemingly insignificant uh, change in the, uh, in the global's land surface had a fundamental impact on those regions of the world that are hot, those that are warm, and those that are frigid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, f- I find that. And it's, it's such a little, it's such a slip of land. I mean, it's just yeah. a little bitty thing. And it had an absolutely huge impact. And this is well described in the book and, and really quite fascinating. You will come to appreciate the uh, Isthmus of Panama a lot more yes. when you yeah. read the book. So let's move on to uh, the, uh, the, the sort of next phase, because the book is both chronological uh, and topical. But we're chronological at this point in terms of um, uh, 
the evolution of humankind itself and the way in which it interacted with global climate uh, change. One of the one of the things that you mention is the way in which climate change again affected evolution. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think there's there's a group of paleoanthropologists and uh, geneticists who actually argue rather convincingly to me that um, the drying up of the uh, what remained of the Tays Sea that we now think of as the Mediterranean uh, extended the savanna from North Africa down into its present location where there was once a heavily wooded forest area which forced our archaic ancestors, hominids, to leave um, the forest and uh, to enter the savanna. In order to survive in the savanna, one had to become bipedal. Mm -hmm. You had to be able to stand up and look out over the tall grass for prey and predators. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the result of a uh, a changing climate. Again, this does not happen uh, in the short term. This happens over the period of literally millions of years. Mm -hmm. So our species, as an evolved species, did not become what it has become in the short run. It's become who we are over a very, very long evolutionary period, following evolutionary paths, some of which lead to dead ends. Mm -hmm. So there are many, many uh, hominid families, but at the end of the day, the only one that's left is Homo sapiens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a book, I believe it's called Extinct Humans. Yes. Uh, that, that talks about just this thing. And, and another thing you mentioned, I wanted to hear you uh, speak about this as well, is that uh, our uh, archaic ancestors, these extinct humans, were um, the f one of the first species, at least, to really migrate all over the globe and to begin the mm -hmm. process of human-driven climate change. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, um, uh, human-driven climate change is a relatively new phenomenon. Um. In fact, as uh, Alfred Crosby refers to humans as a biological entity, in which he talks about the transmission of diseases from animals to humans, I tried to pick up on that theme in this book. Um, in the last few hundred years, uh, one can argue that humans have become uh, geological entities meaning that their behavior uh, has had the capacity to change um, the climate. Before that period in time, that last few hundred years, the climate changed as a result of these geological phenomena. Uh, the, year without a, the year without a summer, 1815, is the result of the massive explosion of uh, the Tambora uh, volcano 
in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how the climate. That's how the climate changed. It changed as a result of naturally occurring phenomena. Um, what what we are doing now uh, puts us in that same framework. We mm-hmm. are we we have a we are not only biological, but we are now we're now uh, geological in the sense that we have to, we have the capacity to change the climate system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we go from the point where. Uh, we are in, a, in, in Africa uh, uh, several million years ago, and then um, beginning uh, uh, a couple of million years ago, our archaic ancestors spread all over the globe, or at least yes. most of the globe. Yes. Uh, and this is a very unusual thing. I, I don't know of any other species that really uh, was able to adapt in this way to so many different ecosystems in so many different places. Uh, we do this successfully. And then um, at this point, we're still hunters and gatherers, and the next part of the book deals with the way in which we went from finding food to making food, and the climate plays an important role here. And I'm thinking about the origins of horticulture and yes. agriculture. So, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I argue in the book. It's been uh, there's a review actually by Paul Marx in Technology and Culture, in which he doesn't dispute what I said, but he said there's another there's an alternative explanation to this. Phenomenon. Uh, clearly, at the end of the last ice age, about 12,000 years ago, um, the amount of carbon dioxide in the air, uh, somewhere between 250 parts per million to 280 parts per million, is not sufficient for uh, plants to grow. So when you get this change in the carbon dioxide mix in the atmosphere, wild uh, hunters and gatherers uh, gathering fruits and nuts and other edibles discover that some of these edibles and some of these nuts are actually uh, more satisfying. And they actually begin to cultivate them. They Mm -hmm. begin to cut away the weeds, cut away the, 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 uh, the pots that are non-producing, and that's the beginning of agriculture. And it doesn't happen in one place. I argued that it happened in, I believe, nine different places. I heard a lecture recently in which an Africanist argued that there's evidence that it actually took place Almost simultaneously, within a within a thousand years, in thirteen different locations around the world, mm-hmm. all brought about because of uh, a warming climate. At the the climate the climate system has been warming since the end of the last ice age. Mm-hmm. So we're going back eleven thousand five hundred years, approximately, mm-hmm. and the global climate begins to warm. And it's during the early years of that period when you get what I refer to and others have referred to as the invention of agriculture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the fact that this was discovered independently is to be explained in your scenario and I think in most people's scenario by a common shift in climate that then caused a common shift in, um, in consumption patterns. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, that, yeah, that certainly – there's yeah. certainly some sense to that. And it does occur in geological time. It is shocking 
how simultaneous it is. I mean, again, if you think about, you know, 2,000 years, 1,000 years, 100 years for humans is, uh, is a lot, but in geological time for something to occur within a few hundred years or a few thousand years uh, all over the globe is um, really more than a coincidence. I think I can say that. Oh, yeah. oh yes, it's much more than a coincidence. Yeah. And so, uh, the, the, uh, the theory that... Um, uh, that one society learned how to do this, and then it was transferred to another society, mm-hmm. and then to a third and a fourth, I think is the misreading of mm-hmm. these materials. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That this is not the result of the transmission of uh, one host uh, to another. These, these events occur quite independent of the others. Yeah, I mean, I think the proof of that is the Mesoamerican case, where yes. it's... it's, it's, it's it would it would require an incredible uh, discovery of tr- uh, transoceanic voyagers to explain how agriculture got across um, the Pacific or Atlantic to Mesoamerica. So um, I suppose somebody's looking for that, and if they find it, then um, there is no Nobel Prize in history, but we'd give it for that. <laughs> um, so, so uh, once humans start to make food, um, then things really pick up. This is uh, you know roughly ten thousand years ago, ten twelve thousand years ago. Uh, they also uh, they grow food, but they also begin to um, domesticate animals, and th- this also has something to do with the climate. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, uh, the domestication of animals—it's um, really quite extraordinary when you think back these many thousands of years of um, they begin they actually begin to breed out of some animals their most aggressive instincts and they breed out of animals sizes that they can't control now they're not successful with all animals but they're successful with enough so that um, they can actually begin uh, a culture of not only farming, but a culture in which they are raising livestock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think the most interesting part of that interrelationship between animals and humans is that almost all of human infectious diseases are the result of close cohabitation with animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of the poxes, the common cold, influenza, all have animal hosts. Mm-hmm. And we know this today. I mean, actually, when we hear things like uh, uh, flu epidemics coming out of cultures where, where uh, pigs and geese are being raised in the same living space that humans are, that that's the incubator Uh for for these diseases. And that's the incubator for um, the diseases that Homo sapiens has carried on from one generation to the next. It's probably one of the more negative aspects of of moving from uh, hunters and gatherers uh, to living in settled communities. Um, uh, agriculture initially was not a way in which people thrived. There are clear examples of uh, the stature of people, people getting smaller, dying earlier, 
So hunter-gatherers may have been a really quite a robust um, uh, part of our species, mm-hmm. which is which is now lost, mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately. I think in some regards, because we, th- <laughs> we think of hunter-gatherers as being marginalized, living somewhere in the Kalahari, but the reality is that for a very long, many millions of years, uh, humanoids and our archaic ancestors lived um, and may have thrived by being hunters and gatherers. Mm-hmm. I think one of the interesting things that your book points out is that once humans start to um, domesticate both plants and animals, the uh, if it ever existed, the independent genetic existence of those species and us ends. Yes. We, we, we now are co-evolving. And the plants that we have today and eat and the animals that surround us today are the result of what Darwin would call artificial selection. Yes. Uh, operating over what to us is a very long period of time, 10,000 years. Again, in evolutionary terms, it's a, it's a second. Right. Uh, but every animal that you see all around you is the result of this process of co-evolution. Yes. And, and so the, the fact that there's huge amounts of methane in the air as a result of these great lumbering beasts that we bred <laughs> that are everywhere in the Midwest, um, you know, is it started 10,000 years ago. Well, 8,000 years ago, I would yes. say. Yeah. So, so you can chalk methane up to our distant ancestors. Um, let's move on just a, a, a little bit um, and talk about the growth of these settled communities. Cause as you point out uh, the early environmental history of uh, humanity and of the, of humanity's interaction with the planet is about hunting and gathering um, and then later it becomes about the domestication of plants and animals. And then sometime after that, in probably several thousand years, people start to really settle down in communities, something that humans had never done before. And this has a vast impact on yes. on the environment. Maybe you could talk about that. Well, uh, uh, it, it, uh, it, it certainly is one of the, one of the more significant uh, either unintended or intended consequences of uh, horticulture and agriculture and the domestication of, uh, of animals that uh, permanent structures are built, uh, small communities, village, hamlets and villages ultimately grow into uh, large settlements and ultimately become cities. And our entire way of living uh, changes rather significantly as a result of that change. Um, clearly, I think one of the more significant outcomes is that city dwellers then become uh, dependent upon those who live in the outlying areas for their food stock. Um, they also become uh, disconnected and I think this is certainly true today, disconnected from the source of the food that's on their dinner tables and uh, the origin of those, uh, uh, those plants and animals. Mm-hmm. So that you have humans all over the world today, in, clearly in the industrialized world, uh, who have no connection at all to the growing of plant food, or the slaughtering of animals and the preparation of those animals for uh, human carnivores. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things I was thinking about when I was reading the chapter was um, the fact that they put landfills pretty far outside cities. Yes. We just don't know where all that stuff goes. I mean, you throw something in a trash can on a street corner and you have no idea where it goes. Exactly. But if you look at a landfill, you're like, I mean, some of these things are uh, like the size of small towns themselves. Absolutely. And cities produce these things and, you know, cities, and they do tangibly affect the environment by concentrating waste, which is something you point out. Also, the despoiling of rivers, because cities tended to be built on rivers. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, I... um, (laughs) <laughs> Donald Worcester wrote a famous book called Rivers of Empire and uh, it's quite clear that in these early uh, periods of human settlement living along rivers provided sources of transportation uh, fish and fowl for eating uh, and drinking water and water for irrigation the rivers were uh, the lifeblood of of these communities, and many of them grow into world cities uh, as a result of that. And it's no, it's certainly no accident that independently each of these human groups is building its settlements along waterways. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, and they're also throwing all of their waste into these waterways. Oh, they are. They are doing that as well. Yeah, and I think this, you know, and also they're changing the course of these waterways. I mean, we we uh, we have tried to do this um, mightily here in the Midwest, and uh, as we're seeing right now in the news, not with great effect. No, no. Uh, because uh, you know, I'm I'm reminded of the debates we have here in Iowa City sometimes, and Cedar Rapids about flood mitigation, and somebody wants to build a dike here. Oh, well, again, yeah. it's a little bit like the landfill. The water has to go somewhere. Yes. And we're just pushing the problem downstream. Yes. And, and, but we don't really think about that very much. I've, I've always been fascinated by the, uh, by the Missouri-Mississippi uh, watershed. And I'm, I just am just struck each time one of these floods occurs. Uh, Mark Twain apparently once said, the river always wins. Yep. And uh, we have invested hundreds of millions, probably billions. Billions, of definitely billions. And and yet the river, um, the river is a, a, a living force. And with heavy rain and lots of snow, uh, all of those downstream communities and cities uh, are vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's another example of, I think it's another example of this. Uh, this ecological imperative that humans have been able to change lots of things in the natural world, a few for the better, many for the worse, but it's probably the case that in the thousands of years going forward that they will be unable to sustain uh, the kind of barriers that have been built to contain these rivers. And yep. the Mississippi the Mississippi will basically take Baton Rouge and Louisiana with it. Yeah, but it's a, it's a little bit like the old parable of the the frog that you put in the uh, in the pan of of water on the stove and you turn up the heat very slowly. People don't see it happening. First right. of all, they don't want to believe it because it's a, a disturbing right. thing to think about. And, you know, the frog doesn't really realize the water's getting warmer until it's boiling. 
right. then it's all over. I mean, these things, uh, you know, in an, in any given lifetime, it is kind of hard to see how the, the uh, uh, climate change, but over geological time, it's certainly much easier. And I know, you know, we go through this periodically in the Midwest, every, you know, really all the time. It, it yes. just happens a lot. And, yes. and it looks like it's happening with increasing frequency, but people don't really, I think, want to face it. And, and there is nothing, anybody who's taken even a, um, a, a primer and read it on geology or geography knows that there's nothing that can stop an ice age. It's an ice age. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. It's not stopping. No, it's an no. ice age. Yeah, there's no. nothing you do about it. So um, let's let's move on uh, a little so, bit. Uh, let me let me Go just ahead. backtrack a minute because I think you raised an important point here when you said that these communities they they dump their trash, their awful whatever, uh, their carcasses uh, into the rivers, and there's no question that they did things like this, uh, but. When the human population was of manageable size, these rivers and streams, in most cases, were able to accept this uh, load without contaminating the world around them. The human population today and for the last centuries has been such that we have overwhelmed all of these natural systems. And that's why uh, this, this, this connection between agricultural production and then uh, population increase uh, become, become intertwined. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and they, uh, they're, they're now immutable. They cannot be dis. They cannot be disconnected. One of the reasons some of these chapters, uh, many of them, take you from the past to the present. And it's been argued by a few of my colleagues that when you do that, you sort of lose the grand narrative. And I've argued that uh, there have been efforts to produce textbooks, 700, 800 pages in length that are Western Civ or now World Civ, and there's no there's no there's no overarching narrative. What they've basically done is taken an old familiar paradigm and begun with the Paleolithic, and then traced it up to the modern age. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I, my argument is that. Uh, if you're looking for the grand narrative, then you won't find it by by teaching or writing history that way. You'll have a much better chance of coming to grips with it if it's built around a series of conceptual categories, mm-hmm. whether it's mining and manufacturing, industrialization, population change, trade and consumption that those are the major, those are among the major historical categorizations of human affairs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's quite a convincing case. Let's, let's um, go on to another one. You just mentioned it, actually, and uh, I, I, was, I was a little bit surprised to see it because I hadn't thought of it as a separate category, but once I read the chapter, I uh, was convinced that you're right, and that is, in fact, um, mining, manufacturing, and making things. This is prior to industrial work and yes. what impact it had on 
on the environment. This is really in the ancient world and then yes. uh, through, through the beginning of, of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, yes. Maybe you could enlighten us a little bit about that. Well, I think that the term industrialization communicates to all too many people that it began in 1750 and uh, we, after 300 years, have entered a post-industrial age. And yet there is behind it uh, at least 5,000 years of people uh, who have left the Stone Age and are now making mining and out of the product of that mining, whether it's gold, silver, mostly copper, they are making utensils, they're making armaments, they're making artifacts, they're making all sorts of things, and those things are part of an early manufacturing process. They're being done locally, they're being done by smiths of the various kinds, coppersmiths, ironsmiths, etc., uh, and that many of these industries are closely Many of these manufacturing entities are closely related to the household. They aren't separate. Mm -hmm. And it's only with uh, the invention of um, some labor-saving devices, first for pumping water out of mines and then using them in in industry, do you make this transition from manufacturing to industry? In fact, one could argue that the latter stages of manufacturing are, in fact, proto-industries. Mm -hmm. So that 1750, I just opened, I won't mention the name of the textbook, I just opened this book up and started reading it, and it's, it's got a 2010 publication date on it. And I'm sure lots of faculty members will buy it. The person who wrote it is very well known. And there we are again. 1750 is the age of industrialization mm -hmm. with no understanding or comprehension of what occurred before that. Mm -hmm. uh, and still refer to the Middle Ages as the Dark Ages, when in fact there's quite a significant amount of manufacturing going on. Mm -hmm an invention during that period that we have classified, misclassified as uh, the Dark Ages. Mm -hmm. So is the thing that differentiates, I, this is a proposition on my part, and I'd just like to hear what you say about it, the thing that differentiates a pre-modern manufacturer from modern manufacturers, in fact, um, artificial power of the non-water variety. Uh, yes. But yes, namely fossil fuels. Yes, fossil fuels, but in the early stages... Uh, water power is instrumental in uh, in creating uh, the lumber mills, mm -hmm. the sawmills, uh, and uh, it's 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 clearly the extraction of coal, uh, a coal revolution, is as significant a part of human history as uh, the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. and, and, and again, we don't pay, it seems to me, enough attention to the transition from water power, things that are organic, to now uh, burning fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's become our life over the last 300 years, and that has been the source. We now know 
of enough carbon dioxide and sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere to begin to change the climate system. Mm -hmm. Do you think that it's proper to say, or is it an exaggeration to say, that we really live currently in a kind of petrochemical age, that our our age, in a thousand years, if we'll still here, people will look back on the very brief moment in which uh, humanity became completely dependent upon uh, petrochemicals. Oh yes, I don't think there's any question about that. That could well be the top. That could well be uh, the chapter in another book or the book itself. Yeah. No, this I... is the age of petrochemicals. When you look at what's happening in the United States now, uh, there's a great debate going on in Western Pennsylvania and in New York State about fracking. Cracking the subsurface of the planet in order to get access to trapped natural gas. Those who are the critics have written about the enormous, the potentially enormous damage that will be done to the environments in which fracking takes place. The waterways, I mean, people are now turning on their water in the Catskills and getting gas. Yep. Uh, and, yet, uh, and yet there's been, um, there's been, uh, there's, it, it, it's, it's, it's promoted as this is a clean fuel. Mm -hmm. This will get us away from oil and coal. But it's, 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 it's folly. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I, 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 I see what you mean. I also find it very interesting to look back upon the, the, our era from the perspective of someone a thousand years from now, because the, the, the fossil fuel age will appear then to be, have been very short. Yes. It, it is not going to last more than a couple hundred years. That's right. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there will be a piper to be paid at the end of it. Um, and, and, and well, the unfortunate part of that, uh, Marshall, is that there are now some studies underway which actually argue that the impact of the continuing use of fossil fuels will elevate the global climate, will elevate the global temperatures that will be felt into the next century and beyond. So we are really changing not only the world in which we live, but the world, the world of successive generations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I, I, I quite uh, agree with you that we are, we are in fact doing that. So, all in all, then humans have had a uh, well. The environment has a, has had a massive impact on on the history of humanity, and and now humanity is having a massive impact on the history of the environment. One of the things that you said, and I kind of want to close the interview with uh, some discussion of this is that we really live in an era in which humans have become uh, the hallmark of a new geologic era. Yeah, um, that's exactly right. Yes. Now, can you talk a little bit about it? Can you explain exactly how that works conceptually? Um, how does it work conceptually? Well, let me, let me give you an example. Like we, there's, a, there's an era we call the Carboniferous. Yes. And that, yes. And so that, that is named after a particular kind of, well, it's a, an explosion of plant life. Yes. And how it affected the global, uh, the way in which the world was. Yes. Um, it seems to me that we are kind of in a similar situation. It's except instead of just plants, it's now humans. Yes. Well, uh, my uh, my understanding of this concept of humans as geological entities 
is can be seen not only in the kind of um, catastrophes which are occurring on a regular basis around the world, natural disasters, whether they are earthquakes, tsunamis, tornadoes, or hurricanes, events that were once considered once-in-a-millennium event, once-in-a-hundred-year event, are now occurring more often. And that gets our attention. What does not get our attention is that these events, these events may be, I think that the, I think the, 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 the hard scientific evidence is, 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 is out there to be, to be presented to the, to the public at some point, that these infinitesimal changes in the climate system has resulted in, of, in weather events. Think of the climate system as something that we, we think of in geological terms. These are thousand-year, hundred-year events. The weather events are the byproduct, the outcome of some of these very, very delicate changes in the climate system. Mm-hmm. One degree, two degrees Celsius, three degrees, five degrees Fahrenheit are causing um, the flooding that you're experiencing. Um, and the, the argument is the 27 flood was the great flood. This has now superseded that flood. This flood, we won't have to wait another uh, 60 or 70 years to see a flood like this again. We may see these on a regular basis. Yeah, we, I was going to say we had, um, when I moved to Iowa City, people talked about the Great Flood. Um, I forget exactly what year it was, but it was a 500-year flood. Yes. And then the first year I was here, we had another 500-year flood. Yes. <laughs> In 10 years. <laughs> right? Yeah. We're not talking in those terms anymore. <laughs> yeah. So, no, I, 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 so, see, I see your point. John Barry wrote this really wonderful book called Rising Tide. It's about the great Mississippi flood of 1927, which he argued had a huge impact on the changes in the political culture of the country and actually uh, led partially to the demise of the Republican ascendancy in America because of its inability or unwillingness to deal at the time with the catastrophe as it unfolded. Um, that was a that was one of your five hundred year events. Yeah, right. So I, got, I have to I have to ask before we run out of time here. What, what can we do? Or is it, or is this simply just one of these uh, large structural processes that historians sometimes talk about that's going to work its way out with the probable extinction uh, extinction of humanity? Well, we we are not we are not doing anything. We in this country are not doing what. Uh, other countries uh, began to do during the last oil crisis of the 1970s. For example, I think I cite this in the book, 30% of uh, energy use in Germany, which has enormous cold reserves, 30% of the energy is generated by renewables. Mm-hmm. We're not any, we're nowhere near that. As a matter of fact, after the fuel crisis of the 1970s, we rolled everything back again. Mm-hmm. 
So I don't think we're doing nearly enough. I think the future, uh, I'm not a futurist, so I don't want to make any predictions, but uh, I would argue that unless some things occur rather soon within the next generation, the next 25 years, uh, the world that we create will be a world that we will be unable to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I, I know I do my part. I'm lucky I can ride my bike to work. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's my contribution. That's right. And, <laughs> and, you know, when, when uh, I'm a walker, I'm a long-term walker, people say, let's, uh, let's take the car. I said, where we're going is only a quarter of a mile. A quarter of a mile, yeah, no. We can walk it in 15 minutes. A quarter of a mile, isn't that a much yeah it is it is funny you know you I, especially if you're from the midwest you know i grew up in a suburb in a, a pretty large midwestern town and uh-huh. there were no there were no sidewalks right and when i first moved to a city back east and they had sidewalks i was like what are these yes <laughs> well, think of that marshall the suburbs were automobile yeah suburbs yeah no it's it's pretty pretty remarkable thing and yeah you know, it's it's a yeah, it's, it's, it's something. And if you try to – if you go to one of these um, – I'm always very interested in this. You know there's an area now uh, – this is a bit of a departure from our interview, but there's a, an area that could be any place in the United States. And it usually has just a whole bunch of big box stores. Oh, you know yes. the kind of place I'm talking about. Oh, yes. They're all over the United States. And we have one here in Iowa City. It's in, it's in Coralville, it's called. Yes. Um, but the really interesting thing is, is that you can't walk from one big box store to the other. Yeah. Even though they're about 500 feet apart. It's just that you can't walk. You have to get in your car and drive to it. It's, pre- it's a pretty remarkable thing. And I, I, yeah. And let me just say this, uh, be quite honest. I like cars. I like driving them. I have great appreciation for their engineer. I really do. I really like cars a lot. But I, man, oh, man, I look at that and I just really wonder about it. Well, anyway, you know. So I'm, buying, I'm driving a diesel. Are you really? Yes, I'm driving a Volkswagen TDI. Yeah, I wanted to buy, you know, I, it's funny. I'm sorry, this is not a Volkswagen commercial, but I wanted to buy one of those. I drive a Volkswagen too. Um, I, did, I did want to buy one of those. Yeah, they're very nice. It's a wonderful car. I drove from Boston to Washington, D.C. Uh, recently. And if it wasn't for my wife, who kept looking at the odometer, uh, said, my goodness, you only have two gallons of fuel Left and I said, but look at the look at the Rito. We can yeah. drive another, we can drive another 120 miles. And because she got so upset, I had to pull into a filling station to fill it up. But we'd driven almost 600 miles yeah. Yeah. on 14 gallons. Well, actually, on 12 gallons of diesel fuel. Yeah. Well, that, that's those. Are tr- yeah, they're terrific. I noticed when they they came <laughs> out. And I, well, I could go can on. I, can I tell you a little bit about the project I'm working on right uh, now? That's what I was going to ask you next. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, uh, time. yeah, we are running out of time, but it's okay. Uh, we have a little bit more left. And I wanted to thank you for being on the show. And again, as those of you who listen uh, regularly know, our traditional final question is, what are you working on now? So Tony, take it away. Uh, I've been working for the past uh, two years on a book with an earth scientist uh, uh, built around case studies on global natural disasters. So each chapter takes a category, for example, tsunamis. And what we've done is uh, gone through the, 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 the geological and uh, historical literature to find examples of uh, this great event in prehistory. And then another event uh, during the historical period, but usually 
five or six hundred years ago, if possible, and then a, and then a present day event. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've written chapters so far on volcanoes, uh, uh, hurricanes, um, uh, tsunamis, uh, floods, and fires. Mm-hmm. And we have invasive species and earthquakes and a few more to do a 10-chapter book um, and with an introduction. And I think one of the things we learned by doing this book is that I thought initially these are events that are clearly natural events over which humans have little or no control. But what I've discovered is over historical time, human activity has actually put them in places that makes them vulnerable to these events. A good example is in 1938, 3% of the American population lived on the East Coast. So the great hurricane of 1938, they didn't have names then, uh, came through the area, did 10 to $12 billion worth of damage. Today, more than 25% of the American population lives within 15 miles of the Atlantic coast. That's astounding. Astounding. As a result of that, as we go through the insurance records, most of the insurance companies now refuse to insure properties in coastal regions because they know that if there's going to be another 1938 event, which, by the way, at the time was a a millennial event, happens every thousand years, uh, they know that they will go bankrupt mm-hmm. if they try to insure all of that property. So humans, uh, we're, 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 uh, we're putting ourselves in, in vulnerable places. And I think part of that is not only our attraction to water and to the sea, but also because there are so many of us. Yeah, there are a lot of us. It's true. Yeah, it's true. Well, it sounds like a fantastic project. People love disasters. Well, they love to read about them. They don't like to, they don't like to experience them. They love to read about them. So anyway, I, 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 um, I, I look forward to reading it. And again, I want to say, Tony Pena, thanks for being on the show. The book is The Human Footprint, A Global Environmental History. Tony, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Marshall. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Tony Pena about his new book, The Human Footprint, A Global Environmental History. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.